I invite you to open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 13. Okay, Pastor Randy read a portion of Scripture that brought us up to the giving of the parable of the sower and like or the parable of the wheat and tares and like the parable of the sower the Lord Jesus first gives it and then he gives the interpretation of it only uh, uh, in these two parables does he do so here in Matthew chapter 13 so I invite you to look with me at chapter 13 beginning in verse 36 and reading through verse 43 Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, probably there in Capernaum, where he'd been teaching earlier before he had given the parables on the seaside. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. It piqued their interest and they didn't want to misunderstand it. They wanted him to interpret it for them. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, may God grant each one of us to have a correct understanding of this parable this morning. And so the occasion of this parable is given right after the parable of the sower and the soils. The audience here, especially when it's given its interpretation, is the disciples. And notice the relationship of the parable of the wheat and tares to the parable of the sower and the soils. In the sower and the soils, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about how the word of God preached is received in the hearts of various kinds of people. It's more individualized. Now here in the, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, we're looking at it being broadcast, that seed, this time, not the word of God, but the people of God, being sown throughout the world. And at the same time, there the evil one, is carrying on his nefarious work as a counterfeit sower and sowing tares amongst the wheat. Now, as we consider our study this morning, we're going to look at the key elements of the parable explained. <clears throat> then we're going to consider the abiding message of the parable applied. So let us consider then the key elements of the parable 
explained. And we have five points that we're going to be looking at this morning. First of all, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the Lord Jesus teaches here that it is the universal sphere of God's rule. You see, it's, it's crucial for a proper interpretation of this parable to understand the definition of the kingdom of heaven because it doesn't always mean the same thing wherever it is used. Sometimes the term refers specifically to the sphere of salvation, it's inhabited only by those who have been converted by the grace of God. We see that earlier in Jesus' teaching in Matthew, where he gives the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, they and they alone, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here, the kingdom of God, it's the sphere of salvation. Those who are poor in spirit, those whose eyes have been opened to see the kingdom of God, those who are born again. So that would be the kingdom of heaven more narrowly defined. But the term kingdom of heaven, as Jesus uses it here, is wider than the sphere of salvation. It includes Christians, but its boundaries stretch out to take in the whole world. The field, Jesus says, is the world. So the kingdom of heaven refers to God's universal sovereignty over the whole world. Jesus has in mind such texts from the Old Testament as Psalm 22 and verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty, or it could be translated, his kingdom rules over all. So when we look at Jesus' terms here, the kingdom of heaven is the field, and the field is the world. You see, this includes all non-Christians and all Christians, in other words, all people. It includes all true Christians, all false professing Christians, indeed all men and women of all religions and no religions, everywhere, in all places, and at all times, everyone living together in this world. It's as expansive as that. So that's the kingdom of heaven. It's a universal sphere of God's rule. Notice, secondly, the sower. The sower. Notice his regal identity and worldwide mission. Verse 37, And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now who is the Son of Man? Well, that term is often used. Ezekiel of, uh, by, uh, by God is the Son of Man. But the Son of Man here has a specific, redemptive, historical reference. And Jesus is self-consciously self identifies himself as one who is prophesied in the book of Daniel as the Son of Man. Jesus uses this term of himself more than 80 times in the New Testament. 
So our Lord, no doubt, is thinking of the text that we find in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, Jesus is conscious that he, as the Son of Man, come from heaven, is the sower who is prophesied by Daniel. He is none other than the incarnate second person of the Blessed Trinity. He is divine royalty. All men in this world dwell under the sway of his divine scepter. He rules over all. His authority has no beginning or end. His kingdom is indestructible. This is Jesus' self-conscious identity. So having seen his heavenly origin and regal identity, notice, secondly, his worldwide mission. His worldwide mission. Jesus came from heaven into his kingdom... Here he describes himself as a sower to scatter, this time, not the word, but to scatter good seed, that, that is, those who are Christians, as his good seed throughout the world. A world that belongs to him, a world that he came to redeem, a world that will one day yield a harvest. And even now his mission is proving successful. There are good ground hearers that are receiving the word of God. These good ground hearers, Jesus is planting as seed throughout the world. His final success is assured because he possesses all authority. By his authority, he sends forth his sowers into the field of this world to advance his saving rule, to extend his kingdom far and wide. Indeed, when Jesus was ready to return to heaven. Before he ascended on high to the right hand of majesty, he said to his disciples what we call the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, he's thinking of Daniel chapter 7 here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this worldwide age-long mission Though it's vigorously contested and viciously opposed, it will not fail. We need to keep that in mind as we look around us 
And it seems like the dark side is winning and the light is being extinguished. The seeds that he is planting like gospel seed in the good ground, they will yield a great harvest. And this harvest is guaranteed because Jesus ascended to heaven, having accomplished the work of redemption. And we know that when he comes again, there will be those who will be gathered that no man can number from every tribe and kindred and people and tongue. Well, not only did Jesus' saving mission pave the way for the advancement of the gospel in the world, it also overthrew the tyranny of the devil, another sower, the false sower, over the souls of men. 1 John 3 and verse 8, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that he has done on the cross, and that he is doing as he's bringing light into the midst of darkness, converting those who were once his enemies and making them into his friends. He is destroying the works of the devil. Indeed, you and I who sit here, if we're converted, if we've been saved by the grace of God, we are a work of God. We've been snatched from the hand of the evil one. We're in the hands of Christ. We're no longer on the wide road that leads to destruction, but on the narrow road that leads to life. So he appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Indeed, make those people his works. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 3 and verse 22, speaking of Jesus ascending to the right hand of majesty after he had completed his redemptive work as the Son of God and the Son of Man, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. See, the devil's not without a leash. Lord Jesus has him on a very tight leash. And he gets away with nothing than what God, other than what God has permitted him to do. Well, Jesus won his decisive victory over the devil on the cross. And he's opened the door for the advancement of the gospel in the world. And even before ascending to Mount Calvary, he saw the power of the gospel in saving men that he knew he would secure by his bloody death and self-sacrifice on the cross. Remember, he told the apostles after they came back on their preaching mission that he witnessed Satan falling from heaven like lightning, a prophecy of his full and final doom. You see, the devil is a defeated foe, but like a secret traitor, He's sneaking about within the castle walls, within the kingdom of God. He continues his attempts to defeat King Jesus, even knowing that his time is short and his days are numbered. Isaac Watts anticipates the glorious consummation of Jesus' worldwide kingdom that we will behold when he returns to this world to make all things new. We often sing these words at Christmas time. But Isaac Watts isn't thinking of the first advent, he's thinking of the second advent when he writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
And that will happen. Just as surely as He brought salvation, He's going to bring judgment. He brought salvation at His first coming. He's going to bring judgment at His second coming. So we've seen the kingdom of heaven, the universal sphere of God's rule, the sower, His regal identity and worldwide mission. But there's another sower in this parable, and that is the enemy. Let's consider his diabolical identity and his subversive activity. Notice first his diabolical identity. Jesus, the good sower, identifies the evil sower. He calls him the evil one. He's the devil. He refers to him as his enemy. And as his enemy, the devil vigorously and virulently opposes the advancement of his kingdom. And as the enemy of Christ, Satan makes himself the enemy of Christ's people. He hates the head and he hates the body. He hates the one who gives salvation and he hates the ones who receive salvation. He hates those who are snatched out of his hand. The New Testament is not silent about the devil and his wicked and powerful influence in this world. 1 John 5 and verse 19, and you don't have a lot of these texts in your notes because I just didn't have room enough to put them in there. 1 John 5 and verse 19, John concludes his first epistle saying that the whole world lies in the power or the lap he lies in the power of the evil one within his grasp. Revelation 12 and verse 9, we just had read here from this pulpit not too long ago. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul calls him the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. His purpose is to blind our eyes so that we will not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 2 says, The devil is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And be sure of it, the devil is no friend to man. The world winks at the devil, makes almost fun of the devil. But he's the friend of no man. He's a murderer and a liar. John 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All lies in this world ultimately are traceable back to the evil one. The devil hates God. He wishes to un-God the universe, but he cannot do that. And so he hates the man who is God's image and seeks to destroy him, especially those men in whom the image of Christ is being renewed. His chief mission in this world is to destroy men's souls by keeping them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ 
and to subvert the work of grace in the lives of God's people. And that brings us to his subversive activity. The devil first revealed his opposition to God and hatred of mankind in the garden. He sidled up to our first mother, insinuating that God was a bad guy because he didn't allow her everything that she might want. And in fact, if she got what she was forbidden from having, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. The devil saying, God's keeping you from realizing your true divine self. And there in the garden, he sought to kill our first parents by turning them from the Lord to worship himself. Indeed, his career of vehement opposition to God and man is prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. God issued a declaration of war between non-Christians, or the seed of the serpent, and Christians, the seed of the woman. Genesis 3 and verse 15, God says, as he pronounces judgment upon the evil one, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And brethren, right here, we have the origin of the hostility of the wicked toward the righteous. It begins right here. And if we have any doubt, the very firstborn of Eve proved himself to be a son of the serpent. He expressed his enmity by killing his brother Abel, who was a righteous man before God. 1 John 3 and verse 12. Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We see the enmity right there. The hostility of the evil one against men knows no rest. He's ceaseless in his evil activities, especially inciting the wicked to hate and to oppress the righteous. The history of the world is a record of the ceaseless assault of Satan and his minions against God and his chosen people. Cain, of course, is the first in history. I but mentioned the pre-flood world arrayed against the God of Noah, Babel against God's true religion, Egypt, and then the Canaanitish nations against the Jews, God's chosen people, Israel's hostile shirt tail relatives, the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites arrayed against God's people, attacks by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Persians, the incursion by Greece, domination by Rome, Hostility from individuals like Haman and Absalom and Judas. Further persecution by Gentile religions, especially Islam. The subversion of the gospel by a counterfeit Christianity called Roman Catholicism and now woke Christianity. But brethren, God's kingdom prevails. In the same breath in which he declared war between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, the Lord issued his first promise of the gospel. Indeed, his first promise in the Bible, which is a gospel promise, 
This glorious promise assures us that the seed of the woman will destroy Satan and his seed. Speaking of this triumph through the death of the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed, God warned Satan, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. A picture of Christ being bruised on the heel there on Mount Golgotha. But we know that he bruised the evil one on the head because three days later he rose victoriously, triumphing over sin and Satan and this world. You see, Jesus' death not only pays for our sins, but it also defeats our infernal enemy. So that's the enemy, his diabolical identity and subversive activity. Notice, fourthly, the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. The sowing of the Son of Man and the sowing of Satan. The true and the false. We're to see the effect of this spiritual warfare in the world. Sons of Satan opposing sons of God. Now we come here to the thrust of Jesus' parable. Notice, first of all, the true, the wheat, the good seed, sons of the kingdom. The seed in Jesus' parable of the soils pictures the word of the kingdom, the gospel. This seed bears fruit because it is planted in good soil. In the parable of the wheat and tares, the wheat pictures the good ground here is planted by Jesus throughout this world. They are called good seed. They are called wheat because they have been made fruitful by the saving grace of Christ. Jesus calls them sons of the kingdom because they are royal sons of the king who owns, the, owns the, this world, who is the sower and owner of this property which we call the world. He plants his sons throughout the world to increase his harvest. And he gives them the promise that one day they will, against all opposition, inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the false, the tares, the devil's seed. Notice two points. First of all, they're descriptive names. While the wheat are the sons of the kingdom, the tares are the sons of Satan. We might say that they're the the sons of hell. Jesus also calls them stumbling blocks. He calls them those who commit lawlessness. They're trying to trip up people, especially the people of God. They commit lawlessness in the name of freedom. And this isn't surprising. Sons naturally imitate their father, do they not? Jesus imitated his father and carried out his heavenly mission. And sons of Satan imitate their father and carry out his hellish mission. John 8, verse 38, 41, and 44. Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, Therefore, also, you do the things which you heard from your father. You are doing the deeds of your father. 
you are of your father the devil, and you do the desires of your father. Jesus, notice, this describes the sons of the devil, these stumbling blocks, these lawless ones. He describes them as tares. Tares are an apt description of professing Christians. You see, tares mimic wheat. And for this reason, tares are sometimes called cheat grass. They look like they're going, they're going to grow up to be wheat, but when they mature, they, they're a cheat. They counterfeit wheat in the early stage of growth, where they're brown, but they're distinguished from good grain. After they mature, they turn black. But these weeds are not harmless. They're not harmless. They're not harmless imitations of wheat. So they have no nutritional value like wheat does, but these seeds contain a strong poison that dulls alertness and causes sleepiness. Tears may be infected, as they commonly are, with a fungus that causes severe nausea and sometimes death. Make no mistake, our Lord teaches that counterfeit Christians are not harmless, but positively harmful wherever they are found. Notice then their destructive mission. In the same way that tares counterfeit wheat, these children of the devil sometimes pass for children of God. They grow together. They're seen together. But make no mistake about it, they are noxious. They are like a plague. They blight the good name of Christ, and they bring disrepute upon the name of the church. Now, brethren, it's important that we understand that Satan's chief work in this world is not so much to plant pagan religions, but to sow counterfeit Christians. They harm the harm done to the cause of Christ by counterfeit Christians is far more damaging than any harm done to Christ by paganism. False professing Christians turn men from Christ. They put hypocrites to sleep. Their influence inoculates men against the true religion because they think they have it, but they don't. Paul speaks of such teachers who entered churches... Servants of Satan, spreading their noxious doctrine and influence, pretending to be preaching light while promoting darkness. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Counterfeit Christians who teach lies in the name of truth turn men away from the truth as it is in Jesus. 
You see, this is the devil's chief M.O. Not teaching outright lies, but injecting his poison into the truth, perverting the truth with error. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. But I am afraid, Paul says, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's not harmless. It's positively harmful, their influence. Jude writes, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, they turn the pure purity of the gospel into that which condones wickedness. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, fifthly, the coming separation of the true and false. The coming separation of the true and false. It's present delay and it's future certainty. Notice, first of all, this coming separation. Let me just read verses 39 through 43 one more time. Beginning in verse 38. And the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice this present delay. And in it, this warning about the present delay, there's a warning here against attempting an early separation of the tares from the wheat. Jesus, you remember, said, don't try to separate them. Let them grow side by side, lest in gathering up the tares you may root up the wheat with them. Notice several facts crucial to our understanding of this separation. First, consider the timing of the separation. It is at the end of the age. This, we learn elsewhere, is at the return of Jesus Christ. Consider, second, the agents of separation. They are the angels. They're not individual Christians, nor are they the church. In fact, Jesus explicitly forbids His people from attempting this separation. Third, consider the purpose of the separation. It is for the eternal destruction of the wicked and the eternal blessing of the righteous. 
You see, only the Lord, not His people, is qualified and equipped to effect this separation and the blessing of the people of God and the destruction of the enemies of God's people. Finally, this qualification prohibiting this early separation of the wicked and the righteous. You see, only the Lord knows infallibly those who are His and those who are not. We as God's people, we don't know this. Great harm would come to the righteous by wrongly identifying them with the wicked. They must be allowed to grow together until Jesus makes the separation at His return. Sadly, church history drips red with the blood not only of God's true people murdered by false professing Christians, but even more sadly, that the blood of professed believers is sometimes shed at the hands of those who profess the truth. Jesus is saying, avoid this. It's not your responsibility. It's mine. Now is not the time. That time is coming. But before moving on, I wish to state briefly a wrong conclusion that some have drawn from Jesus' prohibition. Now, in forbidding the elimination of tares, Jesus is not prohibiting excommunication of unrepentant, professing Christians from membership in Christ's local churches. He's not saying that. Remember that the field is the world. It's not the church. Our Lord plainly teaches elsewhere that such persons, unrepentant, professing Christians, that they must be removed from the church and returned to the world where they belong until they repent. Here he warns his people against employing violence against heretics and false professing Christians in the world and to look forward patiently to the day in which Jesus will deal with them in infallible and inescapable justice. You see, their day is coming. So having seen the present delay, notice briefly its future certainty the future certainty of this coming separation, the assurance of a fair and equitable harvest. Notice two things Jesus teaches. First, we saw that Jesus teaches that God's judgment waits until the end of the age. And it seems likely that the immediate reason Jesus taught this parable, as we consider the historical context, was to correct the common false notion imbibed from John's prophecy that God's judgment of the wicked would come momentarily because He sent His Son into this world immediately following the sending of the Son will be the judgment against the wicked. Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. John says, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize his enemies with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I think it's very likely that Jesus gave this parable to correct that false notion that John had pointed to him as the judge of all the earth who was going to come and bring the great separation during his first advent. Second, Jesus teaches, even as John did, that God's judgment will be fair, it will be equitable, he will gather true Christians, wheat, into the barn, which pictures heaven. Indeed, the new heavens and the new earth, which will be inaugurated at the complex of events that will happen when Jesus returns. He'll raise the dead. He'll have the judgment. He'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he will consign the false, the tares, into everlasting fire, the lake of fire. This reward and punishment we don't have time for this morning. But God willing, we will consider in greater depth when we ponder the parable of the dragnet. So the question each one of us must ask ourselves with judgment day honesty is this. Am I a true Christian or am I a counterfeit Christian? Am I wheat or am I a tare? Am I genuine or am I a hypocrite? Which is it? So that brings us to the abiding message of the parable applied. Four points and we'll be done. First of all, expect that the progress of God's kingdom will always be opposed by Christ's enemies. But be assured that they will not ultimately prevail. The devil and his lies are no match for the superior power of Christ and his gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, delivering us from sin and Satan and this foul world. So Paul preached, giving his own testimony in Acts 26, verse 18. Why was he sent into this world? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is, in Jesus. Paul understood that the gospel message would go forth and it would prevail and it would turn sons of Satan into sons of God and tares into wheat. Those that are the foes of Christ into the friends of Christ. You see, one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. We're awaiting that day. And so we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Secondly, understand that Christ's chief enemies are hypocritical professing Christians. 
They're not pagans. They're not just the people of this world who make no claim to faith in Jesus Christ. The ones that can do us most harm are the ones that we trust, right? The testimony of Christ has suffered damage and the advancement of His kingdom thwarted more by false professed friends than ever by open avowed enemies of the cross. Paul found himself continually confronted by false teachers. And in giving that long litany of the dangers that he faced in his apostolic work, he testifies of dangers among false brethren. As tares mixed in with the wheat, he used Jesus' words, whose noxious doctrine spread like gangrene, upsetting the faith of many and bringing reproach upon Christ and His church. And so today, many demonic doctrines are being promoted by so-called Christian leaders, preaching feminism, critical race theory, Gender fluidity, moral relativism, denial of gospel exclusivism, promotion of cultural accommodation and racism in the name of equity, destruction of gender roles established by God for the home and for the church. It isn't just the world that's teaching these things. It's crept into the church. It's crept into the message. You see, counterfeit Christians are the devil's chief tool to thwart the advancement of the gospel in this world. Thirdly, realize that false teachers must be exposed but not executed. Paul didn't command the execution of heretics. Instead, their lies were to be exposed by the clear teaching of God's truth. Such men were to be disciplined but not destroyed. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've sent to the gallows? No. Whom I've slain with a sword? No. Whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. You see, it's our responsibility to seek by the grace of God to kill their influence, but not, not their persons. That's God's job. <clears throat> Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's how their influence is destroyed. You see, the kingdom of heaven advances when it wages war, not with the sword of man, but with the sword of the Spirit. And as we arm ourselves with God's truth, it is then that He commands victories for Jacob. 
And finally, be assured that all hypocrites will be justly punished and all Christians graciously rewarded in God's time. So don't fret, beloved. When you see lies advanced as truth, when you see the apparent triumph of evil in this world, God will right all wrongs. Truth will prevail. He will punish the wicked. He will reward the righteous. His timing is perfect. His judgment infallible. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And brethren, this we will consider more in detail when we open up the parable of the dragnet. But I ask you again, and I leave you with this question. Are you a wheat or are you a tear? Are you genuine? genuine? Are you a counterfeit? Are you a real Christian? Are you a pretend Christian? Do you have a name that you're alive but you're dead? Or does the Spirit of God dwell in your heart by faith? These are serious matters. We must answer them with judgment day honesty because one day this question will be answered on each one of our behalves. So I, I ask you, what will judgment day mean for you? Let's pray. Oh, serious and sober things, these, Lord Jesus, to contemplate. But indeed, you spoke these things to arrest our attention, that we might examine ourselves and test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, that we make our calling and election sure, to prove that we are genuine wheat and not tares, imitating the wheat. So we pray that your spirit would go forth even in this place this day and enable us to look into the mirror of your word and examine ourselves in its light and see what we really are. Oh, might you do a gracious work in the hearts of those who have weighed themselves in the balances and by your word been found wanting. We pray that you would grant them the, the faith that saves. You would remove their presumption and replace it with faith. And those who may be sad about certain sins with genuine repentance, not to be repented of, that they might look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, that they wouldn't leave this place until they have that matter determined by, the, by your word and by your spirit, that they would honestly be able to examine themselves and see what they are, and by your grace, if they're not yours, that you would grant them the graces of faith and repentance to run to Jesus Christ and be saved. And for those who are your people, O oh Lord, might we prove ourselves to be that seed that Jesus speaks of here, that seed into which our hearts were once sown with the gospel, and that we would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold, and so prove that we are wheat and not tares. So, Lord, hear us as we pray these things. Oh, open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear and move in our hearts to respond that your gracious work would be done in each one of us as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.